Good evening. Thank you for joining me on Psychedelic Healing. I am your host, Sonia Cato, nurse anesthesiologist and mental health advocate. Tonight's guest, Noah Potter, is a lawyer based in Brooklyn and has been a psychedelic law reform advocate since joining the Ibogaine legalization movement in the early 1990s. In 2010, he coined the term psychedelic law when he founded his blog, New Amsterdam Psychedelic Law, to describe the type of legal analysis and law practice that is necessary to effectuate psychedelic policy change. Some of his highlights, highlighted accolades include, in 2008, he organized and presented the first public discussion of the New York City Police Department's practice of arresting multiple thousands of young men of color for possession of cannabis in amounts that have been decriminalized since the 1970s at a rate disproportionate to the rest of the white population. In 2010, he formulated his blog. He formulated psychedelic law as an area of legal study when he created his blog, New Amsterdam Psychedelic Law Blog. And in 2012, he explained the DA's legal theory of keeping cannabis in Schedule One forever, which we will definitely discuss coming up. And in 2018, he helped guide the decriminalization Denver campaign in the process of drafting the initiative text. Uh, which has been, as everyone knows, uh, successful, successfully passed. And in 2020, he founded the New Yorkers for Mental Health Alternatives, an advocacy group dedicated to psychedelic law reform in New York. Welcome, welcome, Mr. Noah Potter. Thanks, Sonia. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're so welcome. More focus on, you know, like the papers on why you think the DEA, because it is difficult. Well, except for the DEA, I think uh, MDMA will be rescheduled to schedule three in 2020? Well, yeah. Well, the FDA grants the ability to sell, grants a new drug, new drug application. Then the DEA will reschedule. And actually, I don't know if they, if they hold a hearing as to where it goes or if those conversations are happening now. But yeah, but the idea is that, that MDMA gets approved for, is approved for medical use and it gets rescheduled which I don't think necessarily helps anybody else except in terms of possibly giving them lower criminal penalties. I mean, I think there's other aspects of that analysis that I think are possibly more relevant um, than the, you know, that, that to some extent applies, that analysis applies to cannabis because cannabis can never be rescheduled. That's my understanding. It can't because it's a plant. So under their current their current test, you'll never be able to show safety, efficacy, or anything else because there's there's different strains, and you kind of need to establish. Like, yeah. I don't know how you take every strain through. It's a plant. Ta right. cannabis is a is an organism. THC. So it shouldn't be scheduled anyways. Why won't they just remove it? Because it shouldn't have been scheduled to begin with as a plant. I think that goes to the international treaties. There are treaty obligations, I think, from this 1961 treaty. And my understanding is that the federal law is intended to comply with the treaty obligations. I'm not a big expert on that stuff either, but that's what I've encountered in my, in my path. I mean, peyote is also an organism that's on the schedules, right? It's the the cactus itself is caught in federal law. Uh, I don't think there's anything else like that. The other ones are 
molecules. Yeah. You know, psilocybin, ibogaine, LSD. I mean, it's not the Tabernante iboga plant that's in Schedule One. It's ibogaine. So, which, to my understanding, is just a simple commercial litigator and not an FDA lawyer or anything like that. You could subject LSD to a clinical trial. I don't know if you can do that with cannabis. Well, let's go back a little bit because I'm curious how you, you know, got into the psychedelic space, you know, because you actually have started since the 90s Mm -hmm. um, in the Ibogaine legalization movement. Mm -hmm. So what got you into that space? Well, I mean, that flowed naturally in a sense from psychedelics when I was friend of mine introduced me to acid my summer of my well spring of my senior year and I was like just kind of kicking back because I got myself accepted into college and like you know it's all done just kind of coasting through the spring and in that period so this uh, my friend and influencer introduced me to acid and to my whole friend group in a sense our, our friend group I immediately in that first trip perceived a political significance to psychedelic substances. And it was like, it was just like clear as day to me that one could explain the nature of a society by the types of psychoactive substances to which that society has access. I was living in Philadelphia at the time. I had different, different sets of friend groups. I had a friend group where I went to school, Quaker school up in uh, Northwest Philadelphia, prep school basically. I had a friend group in Southwest Philadelphia, which was, uh, let's just say it was in the early stages of gentrification. It's a neighborhood where when you, there's like 30 different kinds of malt liquor. That's what's available. Tobacco, malt liquor, and other like, you know, toxic high alco- alcohol content. Uh, maybe, you know, you could score some cannabis, but there were no psychedelics. And I immediately perceived a distinction. Uh, you have a society where the, the substances available are what I would call stupefacants, right? Stupefy. Stupe- okay. Right, a stu- stupefacant. <laughs> I was like, I mean, new word, new word. <laughs> I don't know if I, I don't know if that's actually like a word or I made it up. I like I, I like that word. I will copy it. I will okay. copy it for sure. All right. Yeah. Stupefaction. Stupefaction. So there's the stupefaction and there's the stupefacant, which brings about the stupefaction. So, I mean, sorry for the alcohol people out there. I mean, I'm a big fan of red wine and bourbon myself, but if your your frame of reference for a psychoactive experience is some is alcohol, I mean, for me that's what it is. It's it's literally an intoxicant. It's a toxin. You're poisoning yourself. Yeah. Um, and a depressant, really. It is a depressant. It's a formula for, it's like a, you know, for unbridled anger, just press, you know, just press play, so to speak, with alcohol. Yeah. I had a strong hunch, if you will, a an overwhelming inference that uh-huh. one might see society and societal relations and uh, change. There'd be, there's, I, I accept there would be a difference. Now, in retrospect, what kind of differences? So just in like the mental health aspect or just the the city, the health of the city and its population? Right. So, I mean, in retrospect now, 30 something years later, 
Well, first of all, we don't, we can't even really contemplate what the future is. The, 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 to quote myself, where we're possibly going with mass access to psychedelics, I think is a condition of human society civilization that's never existed before. I'm, I'm not aware of any example. I mean, except to the extent that cannabis is a psychedelic, it's a form of psychedelic and there's mass use, mass market of cannabis. I'm not aware there's any historical precedent for mass access to psychedelics. And we have no idea where we're really going. There's always unexpected consequences to technology. And I call, I refer to psychedelics as a form of uh, cognitive technology. Problematic because to some extent it's ancient, to some extent it's present and future. So de defies, defies simple characterization. Well, we can't imagine what that type of society will look like. Depending on how the election of 20, 2024 goes, we still may not see that actually happen because, I mean, what happens in psychedelics can be a function everything else that's going on in the world. As I watch how psychedelics have manifested since I got involved in this space, this society may not necessarily be better. It may just be different. I think I would argue that it might be better. I feel like, you know, I mean, with your experience, for example, with LSD, and I had interviewed a filmmaker, you know, and even through the Grateful Dead times, that the whole purpose was just the enlightenment and the connection, I think, with psychedelics. And I think I experienced it personally, even with ketamine, because I do own a ketamine infusion clinic. Mm -hmm. The connection and the openness and the the oneness, I feel like, just the behavior, if you change the perspective of one person, that yeah. one person will then behave differently and be more open to this next person. It's yeah. almost kind of like, you know, it just flows out like a ripple. Yeah. You help one and you can help many. Right. No, you're you're right. And I'm probably, I'm being way too negative, actually. <laughs> Let me try to- Well, you are on the law side, so you kind of, you know- the law side is another aspect of this. No, I think I'm being like personally negative and try to like, you know, like reel that one back in a little bit. Yeah, I, the access to psychedelics, people in the psychedelic space have seen it happen, have experienced it, and then seen it happen as people like make often, I would say, go through a metamorphosis and they're like, climbing, and it's like, you know, the moth climbing out of the exoskeleton of a, of a, you know, a caterpillar or something. And like, you know, you ac access a truer self. There is a catalyst aspect, but it's not necessarily permanent. I would think it's probably not permanent. I, I, I would, I mean, there, well, actually that's, that's a tough one. Let me not even venture. In, uh, well, cause imagine let's, let's look at you as an example. You know, mm -hmm. you have done so much amazing work and it all stemmed from your first LSD experience graduating high school. Imagine like your passion going and then going into, you know, the Ibogaine movement and just defending all that and helping in Denver, getting the language, you know, for their bill that passed, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of work, it all stemmed from that one experience. Right. That's, oh. th that, that's true. I, I wouldn't necessarily use that as the example, because in that case, the psychedelic experience was a catalyst to becoming a psychedelic legalization advocate. A more famous case might be the report in the media that the founder of Extinction Rebellion, 
did did so founded it in the course of a of a psychedelic experience. I mean, this is is I've I've come across that in the media. Is it true? I don't know. I'm not sure that anything is true. I like, even heard that about Steve Jobs too. Right. Oh, so Steve yeah, Jobs and the Mac. Sure. All right. All, I mean, uh, an accelerator for counterintuitive thinking by allowing you to like you know pull the camera way back. The outcome of psychedelics is going to be fluid and it's going to depend on us. Um, psychedelics should take some pressure off in the sense, I mean, look, one thing is if psychedelics offer a success rate, speaking colloquially, success rate as a mental health care modality that's significantly different than the competitors on the market, which is the messaging that we're getting, you know, we inside the movement, I think, largely perceive that and understand that firsthand. The messaging now in the metrics of the straight world, so to speak, are coming out with these breathless reports about the great, the the significant uh, value added of psychedelics in terms of efficacy. That's all great and like corroborating and self-reifying and all that stuff. Good, 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 good. I think the the legal aspect of it, I mean, I would love to offer it. I would love to offer it in my clinic and mm -hmm. to really help patients because sometimes ketamine alone doesn't benefit these mm -hmm. patients and they need mm -hmm. other modalities, but mm -hmm. it's not legal. And that's why I wanted yeah. to bring you on because uh -huh. you are pretty much kind of at the forefront really to help the government and help its citizens to really mm -hmm. have access to it. Mm -hmm. Because as much as you know, patients want to heal, like some of them aren't going to travel. Like I talk in yeah. every podcast, they aren't going to travel to the mountains of Peru to do ayahuasca. You know, they want to mm -hmm. do it safe at home, being monitored sure. in clinical aspects. Yeah. And when is that going to even be possible? You know, I know we're thinking MDMA in Jan in mm -hmm. 2024, um, but what about the other plant medicines and what is that future? Mm -hmm. Because it all has mm -hmm. to be monetized, right? I know that the FDA and the DA talk about safety, but then we look at the pharmaceutical companies that are really mm -hmm. looking about their long-term financials, you know? Yeah. And so we have this kind of like battle going on, but ultimately really the rate limiting step is the laws preventing the scheduling yeah. of these plant medicines. Yeah. It's a lot of work. It's a lot less work. I mean, if you, if you, if you start modern history in May of 2019 when the bill passed when denver decriminalized psilocybin it's like everything that's pre everything before that's prehistory and that's like that's when history starts because in a sense probably the i would say in a sense like the modern psychedelic movement began in denver with that first ever legal change in the united states as to the you know the legal status of psychedelics not in some in terms of resumption, resumption of research in academia, inside like up way up in the ivory tower for all practical purposes, that opened up. That just like that 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 opened the field to everybody. To if you can affect policy or, at, at the local and state level, then you've just totally flipped the board, so to speak. And now people we know is people are pursuing. People are moving everywhere. You have the example of cannabis. You know, it's it's important not to get get, get stuck in the idea that psychedelics are the new cannabis, and it's a terrible concept. But there's there's so there's, 
very, very different substances, risk, nature of the market, um, type of distribution and environments you would want to have. Yeah, there's a, there's a couple different a couple different threads. I think, um, terms of legal change. My understanding is that to some and, and one way of looking at it, the question of legal change is a question of who will regulate. That's your practical question: is who has authority to say what the market is going to look like? Um, simply speaking, do you put it? Do you, is your lead regulatory authority a the police? department? Is it the health department? Um, is it neither of those? Is it regulatory authority placed in some type of um, um, market regulator? Like this, a state liquor authority. It's, uh, it's a reg it, it regulates a, a over-the-counter retail market of a substance, a um, substance is deeply embedded in the, in the culture. Um, and the culture's familiar familiar with it. It's like the the, the ancestral the ancestral psychoactive of the the dominant culture you inhabit. Um, uh, so there's a long history of use. Um, cultural institutions, uh, the bar, the liquor store, the family gathering, etc. At a meal or some version thereof. Uh, it's a social social use of alcohol, um, and so. It's available over the counter. It's rarely available. The only criteria for for purchase is age, and also you know probably not you're not supposed to serve people as we intoxicated and so on or inebriated, I should say. Um, so that goes that that market goes to a state liquor authority. That's what it is. It's a market. It's a market regulator. You don't need to show a you don't need to show a a a pretext if it if you will to introduce the product into commerce. A drug, you need to a, a psychoactive substance or any of these things. You need to show a reason, a justification to make it available, to introduce it into the market, to get the thing. You need a different gatekeeper. You need a physician or a pharmacist. Uh, you need gatekeepers around the manufacture and distribution, etc. Um, that goes to a healthcare uh, administrator, um, but. By uh, and the relationship between the healthcare side and the police side is a as another topic. It's super important to understand that uh, as a historical pattern in which the doctors may have control of control of the substance, but the police say you guys can't be trusted. We've seen that that that's a, a pattern throughout drug control. Um, but leaving aside that particular tangent, um, so. Question number one is going to be what part of governmental structure, what what um, academic and policy um, discipline will be the lead? Um, so who's going to regulate it? Who's going to regulate? And then you go to the question of uh, federal, state, or local government. So it's a it's like a at, at least a three-way matrix. It's, it's, at least it's a it's it's a two matrices running together. Um, in my assessment, well, where in government level it is, and where it is, I guess like in the, the vertical, the, the vertical aspect, which 
which column are you going to be in? Uh -huh. um, so many different variables. There's a lot of different variables. And one of the, the other pieces of this so that is the degree to which the what a what mass again what mass consumption looks like and because yeah, i know in the Le netherlands um i interviewed somebody that the truffle aspect is yes. has, it has a, emerged from the ground it is illegal mm -hmm. it is legal that you can just buy over the counter mm -hmm. um so i actually never got into the law aspect of that you can just go to any store and yeah just buy it kind of like you would cigarettes kind of yeah thing. oh it's over the counter it's an over the yeah. over the counter product um, I would really dearly love to speak with someone from the Netherlands who's familiar with that market. So maybe offline, you'll help me with an yeah. introduction because I have some things to discuss with this such people. Um, yeah. I, don't, I don't know if these communications are happening, but I think it's super critical for uh, legal reform to have those conversations. And, and, and I think I can, there's a few different strands I'm going to see how I can tie back together. Um, the first one is in the question, as the way I'm presenting the the idea of creating the structure. Um, the next piece of it, I, I think, is um, looking looking at how the the market operates in its natural state, not coming to regulation the way the government seems to like to do, which is to say. Um, we have we are we are now aware of this thing called cannabis or this well, cannabis they knew but they didn't know the medical they didn't they didn't limited 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 perspective on cannabis but so with LSD with ibogaine with psilocybin to say behold we have discovered psilocybin the importance of the medical model and the medical market uh, I think is situational when it comes to Older people, like people in their 60s, 70s, 80s, et cetera, who are dealing with depression, anxiety, and so on, those are people like or may not be able to or want to go to, to fly to Peru. They're going to want to be in a familiar, protected, their paradigm of health is physicians. You, you want to have that access model available, certainly for the geriatric population. I'm sure that if those there's going to be interventions for minors, that's a whole other world of parental consent. I think I, I can begin to contemplate that one. That's something that needs to be worked out. Um, so there, you do want to go through the standard course. I mean, the system is set up now to look for setting off the the benefit against the risk. But we know that the vast market, the psychedelic using population, knows how to use psychedelic substances safely and relatively. You know, there's a baseline of safety knowledge. You know, people people aren't getting public health messaging on how to use psychedelics. You learn how to use them like one to one, if you will, initiate or to initiate. But that's not always what happens. It's not always like, what happens. Of course, the way I look at it is that the stories running about negative consequences from psychedelic use, it's really relatively low. And that's because you can have, obviously you can have problems. I mean, speaking of super reductionist level, psychedelics are technology and all technologies have unintended consequences. 
there are risks involved. But relatively speaking, I'm saying relative to the presumptions in the existing legal system. Those, like all these variables that you discussed for the legalization mm -hmm. and how it's mm -hmm. going to be controlled or regulated, it makes mm -hmm. sense that it could be just, you know, people should be able to get it and be responsible on themselves, but we also are responsible for the education, you know, We're doing no harm. So that that seems definitely uh, difficult. I feel like we could go and do a whole other episode because I didn't. We didn't even get to you know discussing the history, and then we have D.C., Oregon, New York, all these states that have these measures, along with Denver. And yeah, we could just we could. There's a, there's there's much 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 to discuss. I do want to pull. I want to I want to hit two things at a minimum. One, I want to go to one of my favorite topics, which is the one of the super significant and most unique aspects of psychedelics and of the, the challenge that they pose to our way of thinking and being in a post-enlightenment uh, civilization is the degree to which they fuse what we generally as customarily think of as two different domains that don't intersect. One is religion, one is science. They're substances that fuse the two. You have, and I mean, I, I wrote about this in my piece from 2018, Psychedelic Markets, the future, that there are two different legal tracks that govern psychedelics, which is, which is fairly common in the drug world. And this is one of the things I studied as a political science student, is the, the way that everybody wants a piece of the drug control budget. Everybody's got a little bit of a Department of Defense gets some, some money for drugs, Depart the police get some money for drugs. The customs department uh, people get some money for drugs. The doctors get money for drugs. All that's kind of everybody's got gets a little bit of that drug control. A piece. Well, everybody gets a little piece. Some people get bigger pieces. Some people get less. Some like lesser pieces. This was my fast utter fascination as an undergraduate political science student when I tried to started to get to know the world a little bit. Um, but there's another parallel aspect, perhaps, is that there's two completely different legal systems that govern psychedelics. Mm -hmm. There's the um, law of religion and there's the law of medicine. Law of medicine is different in law of religion is constitutional. It's got a has this constitutional basis. The law of the law of science is different, at least in the United States at the federal level, it's based on the on the Commerce Clause, this this little funny little part of the Constitution that's basically gives the the basis for a big part of federal power um so different bases different starting points and different literally different treatment as i this something i described in that piece that i wrote you have different safety standards applied to the same substance depending on whether the proposed use is medical or sacramental it's kind of weird um and to take that further, it's this kind of like unique, idiosyncratic, and it's not even the right word. I want sui generis, but let's just go with unique. Um, world health product in which efficacy of a drug on the medical side is key to mystical, intangible, and effable experiences. So the idea that the efficacy of a medicine depends on the degree of spiritual transcendental effect, that's kind of weird. That's like right. that's like 
those really, it's like those two things, how are they fused? How, how does that work? I think that's part of the challenge for the, the legal system. There are other challenges as well. The other piece I wanted to throw in just as an idea is another one of my own personal fascinations. And one of my assumptions, I mean, I assume that the, to so some significant extent, the future of the species is going to be in urban areas. And I, I assume, I assume, and so I'd love to spend more quality time in this concept. I assume that for practical purposes, we're going to need to look at metropolitan areas as, as units, like the people who literally live next to you and whose conduct influences your environment. Um, and there's a, there's a, there's a contrary pattern in which people who live right next to each other maybe don't have anything that they don't have as much in common as people who live far away from them as the phenomenon it's the phenomenon of of populations diverse populations that are all interspersed so you don't have culturally necessarily culturally contiguous blocks of people in one space but i'm thinking that maybe where we go in a sense to something back like a city-state model of population centers. Um, so I'm particularly interested in local control over psychoactive substances and psychedelic substances. Part of the like chat too. That would be nice, right? You can like, you can, you can all you people, because every, everybody's, everybody's fantasy. And this is not limited to one part of the population that you're free. You're not, you're, what you get to do is not subject to the predilections, whims, and dictates of somebody from whose uh, constituency lives like 500 miles from you. And you're nonetheless, you're subject to their completely different cultural values and norms. Um, so, I mean, there, there is a danger, I think, if you start to get into a space where there are actually literally different mental health standards in different parts of a, of a societal and societal construct, I can see that boding badly. I can see that as a formula for for, for kind of like societal disintegration to some extent. On the other hand, it may be that we've got enough societal disintegration going on that the including psychedelics won't make things noticeably worse, or to the contrary, they may possibly help in some way to offset that disintegration. Even for me in Fort Lauderdale, even North Florida in the same state is totally, completely different. So mm -hmm. I, I definitely believe in the state and local governments really deciding what they want for their population because mm -hmm. it is so different in different areas of, of the world work or even in the, in the U.S., right? And so giving us the ability to control that. Um, I love what you said about the law of religion and medicine and how mm -hmm. psychedelics is one of the few that gets to kind of inter intersect or we do even have in Florida we do have some religions that are able to practice with psychedelics mm -hmm. um, because that is within their religious practice mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. um, hopefully in the future we'll we'll have that capability you know where we get to decide you know in the clinical aspect be able to decide as well for our patients and then in at home if you decide that that's something that you want that you have the education and you have the resources to learn what's going to be best for you to care for yourself at home. You know, then that's what we need for mental health. 
you even in 2020 co-founded the New Yorkers for Mental Health Alternatives, which is Mm -hmm. amazing because we are in a crisis. Mm -hmm. And I hope that you continue doing all this work and educating everyone with the New Amsterdam Psychedelic Law Blog. Lots of uh, education and just keep updating it and just let us know and keep, keep us up to date on everything that's happening. Thank you so much for coming. Thank it was a pleasure. It was definitely a pleasure. And um, I look forward to seeing all the new things that are up in, in your uh, area of expertise and hopefully getting the, the local and state. Uh, I mean, you're in New York, so you can't yeah. really help down here, but uh, hopefully one day in Florida. We're probably going to be one of the last states, but... Well, what what I think I, my my sense is that the conversation is probably not so much New York to Florida as it is New York to Miami and exactly. Albany to Tallahassee. It's and I think that's I think I don't know we're we're like wrapping up, but you know there's you know I'll try I'll try to wrap up too. But I think that I think that we might want to look at city to city communication and just in a sense like like a grassroots approach, but trying to link metropolitan areas that's been my that's been my theory and kind of like theory speculation some maybe fantasy for a long time is to have the community the low the community the metropolitan areas communicate with each other and having the corresponding elements of the respective governments talking to each other i'd love to do something in new york the report that came out of denver in 2021 and things like that. So, so don't worry. It's not a. It's not a New York to Florida. It's a. It's a New York City to. It's a New York City to Fort Lauderdale, or it's a Denver to Fort Lauderdale, or something like that. That's my yeah. guess. Yeah. Well, I look forward to that day. Definitely. I will definitely take part. All right. Very good. Thank you so much, Mr. Noah Potter. It was an honor. Uh, and everyone, thank you for joining us for this week's dose of psychedelic healing. Have a beautiful night.